0: um first of all again i want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to all of us about um they can't kill us until they kill us which is what the book that we're going to be reading and focusing in on and um you're also a poet as well as a nonfiction writer so can you say a little bit about did, did you start uh, as an essayist first, or start as a poet first, or start simultaneously in both those genres together uh,
1: yeah i was I was a music critic first for most of my life as a writer you know i don't have um, i don't have any quote unquote formal training or education in writing like i didn't study it in undergrad i didn't go to grad school for it um, and so most of my writing life uh, came through just kind of pursuing finding language for the things that I was excited about, which was for most of my life had been music, Um, and I came up on the punk scene in the Midwest, and um, the way, at least then, and now still to some degree, but not as robustly, but then the way punk scenes were kind of in communication with each other was through zines, Um, you know, that's kind of how the word of what was happening on one scene traveled to another scene, and you know, someone had to write for those things, and so my, some of my first writing was in like kind of stapled together punk zines. You know, like reviewing shows or writing about albums or writing some kind of like creative nonfiction about the scene drama. Um, and that was my first entry in writing. I didn't start writing poems until 2011, um, and I, I came up in slam because I lived on a in, a in a place, Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, where I live now. I was fortunate enough to have just a really robust poetry slam scene. Um, and at the time, you know, I just knew that I wanted to i had been getting criticisms for you know i was, I was writing these music reviews for local publications for not not a lot of money um, and then they kind of stopped stopped using me because I was getting criticisms about how my 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 writing my nonfiction writing was too poetic and too meandering um, but i didn 't know what that meant you know i, I didn 't um, like a lot of people in my generation at least i came up. Understanding poems in a very, like, detached way. You know, I came up the poems that were taught to me in school were not the poems that I was excited about, and so I didn't care about poems. And I thought that was what poetry was. Um, but uh, all I knew when I started to get into poems that I was that I wanted to learn how to write um, more poetically. I didn't even know what that meant, but I just knew that if someone was telling me your work is too poetic, and I don't know what poems are, then I need to kind of try to make that to bridge that gap. Um, and so yeah, I was I was a, a music critic first.
0: I wanted to talk a little about music criticism because you know I um, I grew up in Seattle. I was actually a band manager for a band in Seattle. Oh no way! Oh uh, yeah, they were terrible. they you'd never no one has heard of this band, and and um, it was right when grunge was coming up, and they were the last sort of bad hair band. The sort of like just they were they were yeah it was bad. But I had not actually um, thought of music criticism as, um, I wouldn't say valid, but as a sort of, as a real criticism because I, I was ingesting it like through Spin and Rolling Stone as something like, what do I wanna buy? What do I wanna listen to next? But it wasn't until I read Grail Marcus that I really saw what music criticism could do. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your influences as a music critic. Who are you reading? Who are you reading? And what do you think that music criticism can do that other forms of sort of journalistic nonfiction really
1: can't yeah I mean Grill's really important to me um and has been important to me for like my whole like just in a box we just moved so some of my stuff's in a box but in a box back there I got like the the anniversary folio of mystery train you know like grills um grills work is is really um really important we hadn't actually met until this year before we were all kind of shuttered inside I was in Um, Minneapolis in January and he stays there for the winters and we kind of linked up and talked and it was great but um, you know Jessica Hopper is really important to me um, and has been a mentor to me for the majority of my time as a writer of of music things Um, and Jessica Hopper is the whole reason the Tribe Called Quest book that I had out last year existed in some ways. Um, Danielle Smith um, Dream Hampton, like there, there's also like a, a lineage of black music critics that, but, um, you know, a thing for me growing up, well, I'll say two things. First off, I think um, I, I was never that invested in the type of music criticism where a person sits on high and tells you what to listen to and why, or, or just what to listen to. And I'm not very interested in the type of music criticism that deals in the binaries of good or bad. Um, Part of that is because when I was coming up, the only work I could get was reviewing the albums that no one wanted to listen to. You know what I mean? And so, like the, the for the music snobs, right, and for the the you know regional papers who didn't want to review like a pop record, like a Taylor Swift record, and I would get that review, and my instinct would be like, well, you know, I don't really like Taylor Swift's music, so what am I going to do here? It's easier for me to say, I don't like Taylor Swift music, so this album isn't good. But that's not what's being asked of me, right? I think what's being asked is, or the question I think is more useful to ask myself is not, is this bad or is this good? Instead, it's, is this working? And if it's not working for me, for whom might it be working? Like in the context of this larger, in this person's larger career, for whom might this work be, uh, for whom might this work resonate? So that's one. Two, um, I grew up with, music critics who were mostly white and I had, you know, music critics who were important to me, Greel and Lester Bangs and folks like this who wrote to me about bands and musicians as if I'd already knew who they were, as if I had already been in love with them for years. Lester Bangs wrote about the clash as if, you know, I was, I was a bystander to being dropped in the middle of this group's explosion. And, and, what that did for me was allowed me to really find pleasure in discovery, right? Instead of having everything explained to me, um, I got to, on my own, discover bands and discover sounds and discover eras. And in my criticism, I, I don't know why I can't write about Migos as if people haven't loved them the entire time, right? Because I don't want to deprive people in poems and poetry workshops. I sometimes talk about, um, the usefulness of withholding, right? Withholding information, not just about the self, but about the ecosystem that the self operates in, because I think the act of withholding in some ways is very generous to a reader or a listener or someone experiencing the work. And I think that's double in music criticism because what I am looking for most is someone to say, um, Come along on this shared journey with me, and we're going to find out how we feel about this together. Or I'm going to tell you how I felt about it, and then I'm going to leave you on your own to figure out how you feel about it. But here's what I here's what listening to this one song made me feel. You know what I mean? Like I yesterday I was talking about the band Sleigh Bells, and um, I don't know if you listen to Sleigh Bells, but <laughs> the, the first the first song on their first album is a song called Tell 'em, and it is. I was talking about them because I was thinking about Track one side ones on debut albums. And it's hard to explain how that song opens up, but it's kind of just like an assault on the senses. It's just kind of like a wave of noise that is kind of, um, you know, disparate noises clashing together. And I wish I could go back to the first time I heard that ever, but I can't. Though what I can do is hopefully write about it beautifully and eagerly enough that would make someone want to seek out that song and have their own revelatory experience with it. And so I think that's what criticism can do in a way. That's what it's. Uh, that's what I'm attempting to do.
0: What's interesting about this book is that it's also quite different than um, conventional music criticism in that uh, even by your own definition, it does something quite different Where, which is I, I experienced the pleasure of, of some of these um, bands performing and some of the songs but what it really does is locate a, a reason why these these people might be listened to right now and who is listening and in the listening, what is it that different audiences may be hearing? And I was really struck by, um, at first my, the first read of the book, I thought there's some bands that I was thinking from a very stereotypical point of view, I would have been surprised they're in there. Right. Um, uh, my chemical romance, Bruce Springsteen, Carly Rae Jepsen, but, as i read it again and was thinking about some of the pieces and the beauty of the pieces these are bands that are kind of linked around questions not just of of um joy and death pain work and to a certain extent who how they animate these different conversations across racial lines and then those those lines also separate around these
1: Um, yeah i mean oh sorry go ahead go ahead
0: no no, that's it i mean i just want to leave that have
1: you talk about that? yeah some i mean bruce springsteen is um i think about bruce springsteen all the time because he's maybe the most important musician to me Mm -hmm. um i grew up around a lot of bruce springsteen mythology and um you know in in a lot of ways bruce springsteen taught me a lot about writing you know there's there's a trick he does that's so effective of um, fitting a really intense and dense narrative into a small space. Like I think about the song Atlantic City all the time, where like in the first like six to seven lines of Atlantic City, we have uh, the stakes are defined, a scene, a tent scene is set, there are characters introduced who we can kind of instantly feel for, it, you know, like um, there's an explosion and a death, there's a fight happening in a place we can't see. There's all this stuff. And that's just like in the very first half of the first verse. And he's a master master of that. But um, Bruce Springsteen's vision of America and my vision of America are are different, vastly different in some ways, right? I think the way um, the romantics of labor, for example, um, don't necessarily... Um, intersect our, our our ideas about labor don't necessarily intersect in the romantics of labor, but what I gather from listening to Bruce Springsteen and what I what I enjoyed about kind of writing that piece um, was that I think there's a lot that I have learned using his America as a lens to to see my own, um, and you know the same with someone like Carly gray Jepsen who. Um, kind of maneuvers through this quiet but palpable intimacy that I in a lot of my actual life have backed away from um, but she kind of allows me to reconsider those things and so that's you know I I don't know I I, I don't ever want to deify a musician but I like to pull from what a musician is, is trying to tell us um and see how I can map it onto my life, or see how I failed to map it onto my life.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I thought was so great about that essay about Bruce Springsteen is the moment in which um, here he is singing about work, and then you look into the audience and you look at a black man who is working and the ways in which he is getting dismissed or ignored or is responding to or being, you know, erased by this conference. And I thought that uh, covered like the um, the performance, and I thought that was. A really great way of thinking again about the ways in which one labor gets written about and performed, and another labor is actually happening right in front of in front of you. And it was really a great way of 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 you know thinking about how artists speak to us in that moment of the concert. I want to talk about Chance the Rapper too. You open with an essay starting in twenty sixteen. You talk about Chance the Rapper as the most optimistic. Um, sort of singer of that time. And I couldn't help but read the essay and also think that so many of the descriptions of Chance the Rapper could easily apply to Obama and some of the ways that white audiences in particular might respond to Obama. I'm curious, was that something that you were also thinking trying to structure in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, a funny thing about that is that um, shortly after that piece, I think my opinion on Chance the Rapper shifted drastically. I mean, Mm -hmm. much like, you know, at least politically, my opinion on Obama has shifted a bit. So in some ways it it is, you know, the same thing. Um, But, um, yeah, I mean, I I think that chances, optimism of the time is not something I feel as, as good about as I did then. It is still something I think that is interesting for me to marvel at, you know, because I think that the thing with 2016 is, and I was trying to get this across in the piece too, is that Everyone, because of the election late in 2016, I think what got lost is that um, the election was kind of like the final reckoning in a, in, a, in, a long, in a long history of things, but particularly in a year that was uh, really jarring in a lot of ways, you know? Um, and I think the, the summer of 2016 often gets skipped over, but the 20, summer of 2016 was brutal, it was violent, it was anxiety-inducing, it was... Um, you know, there were there were roadmaps pointing to everything that that would come in the fall. But um, I, I I wanted to open the book with something that reflected on hope because I think I spent so much of the book um, in a very cynical place, and I spent so much of the book um, deconstructing this idea that um, hope is particularly useful because I. I and I, I'm notoriously too cynical, obviously, but I, you know, like by the time the book came out, I was at a point where I, where I was telling myself, I don't think hope is a particularly useful thing to rely on, um, or I haven't seen it move the needle enough for me to feel like it is something to rely on. But I wanted to open the book on that note, and then slowly, again, we'll talking about withdrawal, slowly withdraw from the idea as the book traversed.
0: I was going to ask you whether you still agreed with your assessment of Chance the Rapper. Um, no. So how has it changed for you?
1: Um, I mean, I I think that um, I still I don't know how to word this well. I return to that album. I return to Coloring Book specifically and have brief moments where I feel good, but I also think Um, that there was a way that chance was used as a stand-in for like uh, Black, capital J, joy, Mm -hmm. and used to obscure the pain that people were going through, right? And so it allowed for this um, because of the way that um, white folks particularly mapped themselves onto him and his expressions of pleasure, which you know, isn't necessarily his fault. We create the work and then it goes out in the world and then the work is no longer ours and people do what they want to with it. Um, but, you know, it it really allowed for people to be let off the hook and not look critically at why they would run so eagerly to an expression of joy from a Black person at a, during a tenuous time and what that might be obscuring and what that might be allowing for. Um, and I think that is the more critical lens I put on chance. Um, but at the time, I mean, the whole thing about writing is that, you know, you write with the tools you have at the time, and then you're a different person by the time you finish a piece, and, and you can't, you can't just go back and revise yourself endlessly, <laughs> otherwise you're never gonna put out, you know what I mean? So, um and I, I think there's some other things in that book that I would probably reframe now, but um, this is why I tell people that I think completion, our ideas of completion as writers are, is kind of a scam, you know what I mean? Like, we're unfinished people. And so to think about finishing anything is, is um, really tense for me. And I think the better question is, have I done the best with the tools I have at this moment? And, well,
0: understanding yeah. also one one thing that's interesting about music criticism as well is that, especially if you're writing um, as, as often as you are about live performances, right? That's a, that's a time-based right. medium. And, and so that's kind of, useful then to remember like this, these all thing all these things have a time signature on it, even the writing that has to respond to it, right? Like has to respond to a moment. So understanding that this, you know, it's okay to to say that at some point that there's a revision, there's a change, the band changes, the time changes, the response to it changes. yeah But I'm curious then um, as a, a craft-based question, um, when did you know you were writing a book? How did it, what was that process like? When did you, how did you know what to include, what not to include? Were there bands that you actively sought out to write about, artists that you actively thought, I have to consider, say Nina Simone now, which I might not have done in a, another context?
1: Yeah, the pro- actually the process of this book is very odd. Um, and so I, um, $2 Radio is based in Columbus, this is like a, a story that I'll try to make as short as possible. $2 Radio is in Columbus, Ohio um, and one of the people who was at the time an intern was like an old homie of mine. You know, we would like go to shows together and, and shit. And right after my first poetry book came out, um, like right after, like my first poetry book came out in uh, like a, a like September, August, or maybe July of um, 2016, and he had he had hit me up and was like, you know, I'm working for this place and. We loved your poetry book. And I was also working at MTV News at the time. He said, like, We like some of your essays. Do you want to write an essay book? And I was like, No, I don't think so, man. I, you know, just came out with this poetry book. I think poetry is the wave I'm on. Um, and then they kind of kept leaning on me, you know. And I, I loved this idea of writing a book with the Columbus Press. Um, but also at the time, I was going through like an immense, I was living in Connecticut at the time. And I was going through this like immense Um, emotional dislocation, my relationship was ending, I was like preparing to move back home, all this stuff. And um, they had, the whole plan with the book was, well, you have to include this small handful of essays that are previously published and then like write some more. Um, And I said, cool. And this thing happened uh, around November um, from Thanksgiving to about Christmas, I was just in a not a great place. um, And I decided to go to Provincetown um, you know, in the winter, have you ever done like the province town type stuff? I imagine no. maybe. No. Um,
0: but I know uh, about it, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's like in the winter, nobody's there, you know, like it's a, a beach town, and in the winter it's like no one's there except for kind of the town drunks and then the bars, the bartenders that keep it open, you know. Um, so I just went. I wanted to be alone. Um, to be frank, I wanted to be by myself. And um, and I wrote the majority of the book in that time I wrote the majority of the book between Thanksgiving and Christmas of 2016 in a small house in Provincetown and I would go out every day and in the winter in Provincetown you know like stuff kind of closes when it closes there's one grocery store and like real talk the the joint would close just whenever they felt like it it was also (laughs) like if no one's around if it's like one o'clock and no one's around we're just gonna close so I had to get up early every day and go to the grocery store because who knew if they'd be open by noon and i would just write i would come back i would write i would watch like um i would watch friday night lights at night <laughs> and, and like write during the day and go on a, like go on runs because it was like you know it was getting dark hella early so i'd have to like you know all this stuff and so that's when i knew i was writing a book you know i had never written a nonfiction book before and um i mean you know this i feel like po- like writing a poetry book can kind of be like not entirely free of routine but the routine's different you know you kind of like peck away at it mm-hmm. um or I, don't, I guess i don't know what your process is but like for me it's like you know it's not like i'm sitting down to write a book of poems in in this month-long period kind of thing um to be fair i think most people don't write nonfiction books that way either but for me it was that routine i knew i was writing a book when it was like okay i'm being driven um, by heartbreak or by longing or by whatever mm-hmm. to fold into this routine. Um, and the first piece I wrote was a fallout boy piece because that was the one that had been kind of itching at me for the longest time. And I wrote it. Um, I mean, the final draft, I think is like 8,000 words. And the first draft was like 12,000. Wow. And that's what I, I wrote it over the course of three days. And I was kind of like, Oh, I think, um, I think I can write more stuff. Like I think this book can become something. And so that's kind of when I knew, and of course there's stuff I left. out. I mean, I had to leave out so many other things I was excited about or interested in. Um, but that's the trick, right? Is that you convince yourself or at least I convinced myself um, that I'd have more books in my future. Mm. And if I didn't, I'd have to be okay with this one.
0: I mean, the book, to me feels very lyrically inflected i mean so many of the essays do too because you move between subject matters so fluidly and um also many of the essays are quite short so they have this this kind of relationship with the reader that's not unlike a poem where it sort of asks the reader like i have laid out these symbols these metaphors for you you do more that intellectual work you make those connections and even across some of the essays and and also the ways in which the essays call back to each other the ideas of black joy, black pain, black pessimism, black optimism kind of speak across the collection. So it it really, it moves like a collection of poetry to me. But one of the things that also comes up over and over um, that I was fascinated with is kind of the question of the crossover artists, that there are a number of artists and musicians that kind of sometimes have a wide appeal across different groups. And there's a, there's a really fascinating skepticism that you have as a reader that's like, that sort of like takes it seriously, you know, that there's there's white audiences that really respond to these um, artists well. And that maybe it says something about whiteness, like what is the blackness being displayed that allows white people to like it? And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that with some of the essays or if there's anything that that, you would go back and revise even in this book.
1: Yeah. I don't know about revision, but I I do think a lot about um, the consumption of not just work, but people, you know, because I think, uh, because really what I'm always wrestling with is fandom. And um, in the case of Chance or in the case of some other black artists, like what does it mean uh, to be used as the, the voice or a stand-in um, for all black folks. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about, um, I think about this often because I, I think about Toni Morrison often. I'm, I'm from Ohio where Toni Morrison's from. And the thing that Miss Morrison did throughout her career um, and life was try to reject the idea of genius because um, to give into that was to create a, a scarcity among black folks, among black voices. Um, and she uh, also committed a lot of her life to, to getting other black voices in the world so that she would never be seen as the only acceptable black voice right um and so that is what i'm most rigorously always thinking about which is um you know what does it look like to be um the the cap the one black voice that that white people turn to and who is being left behind in that you know what i mean um do your people feel connected with you when that's the case? And so that's where, I, I think I've, um, if there is some skepticism, it's just in in the latter question of who gets left behind when there is one singular voice that people turn to. Um, and what about that voice is satisfying um, to those people? And um, in, is that voice holding back, uh, non-black growth, right? Is that voice holding people back from growing or seeing the world in a in a way that would um, offer some growth to them?
0: I was interested in your essay about Schoolboy Q around this essay. Yeah, oh yeah, Q, right. Like, what yeah. what does Schoolboy Q sort of allow for? Why does Prince, you know, become and then why does somebody not? Then um, I'm trying to think of the band. There was. Um, it was, I think it was a hardcore, it was like a a metal band and the lead singer is black. And for like- Oh, Dream Class Heroes. That's right. Yeah. 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 I was just really fascinated with that essay too. Excuse me. So, I mean, I was gonna ask another kind of craft-based question about um, not just organization, but who you were reading at the time you are also writing this collection. It feels like a lot of um, either sort of shorter, you know, flash fiction or poets that you might've been reading. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was reading, I was reading, I read bluets, of course. I don't know why I say of course all the time, but bluets was like the big thing. Um, I was reading um, a lot of uh, Rita Dove mm. and Natasha Tretheway. I was reading, I read Native Guard a bunch, like I had Native Guard with me and I was reading it and rereading it all the whole time because I think there's something Natasha does that, um, where the, the, the central question in, in her work is, what do I have to do to make you pay attention to this history? You know what I mean? I feel like everything Natasha does is like running up against the wall of like, how how do I need to write this history? Or how do I need to project this history onto the world to make you care about it? In um, Native Guard I think is where that question jumps to the forefront the most. Um, but I was also reading a lot of music. I mean, I read, uh, I had Jessica Hopper's book with me, the first, the, her, her book title. So uh, like hard for me to, to get right. It's like the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. Um, I had that along with me. I had the Lester Bangs book along with me and the Lester Bangs book too. Uh, he's collected, um, essays. A lot of that stuff just hasn't aged well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he died in the early eighties and, and a lot of, the, you know, politically just hasn't aged very well. Um, and it was good for me to sit with that and to sit with it as a book I, I loved once um, and again and then like grappled with. Um, and it gave me a type of permission to consider my affection for music that hasn't particularly aged well. You know, I talk to people now all the time in their, You know, I talked to someone recently and they're like, oh, you know, I I love those. I used to love those old Blink-182 albums, but I listen to them now and I feel so ashamed. It's like, no, I I feel shame. you know, if I think be grateful for the fact that you needed those albums at one time and you don't need them anymore. Mm -hmm. Be grateful for the fact that those albums, whether you believe in it or not, or whether you feel it or not, created a bridge for you to some other albums that helped you create a bridge to some other albums. And then you kind of like grew out of, you know, that. Um, that desire for that kind of music and so having that book was good Um, but yeah I I, and I think um, I was thinking about like long poems uh, like so Pat Rosal's Bone Shepherds the book Um, and uh, I mean a a book I always keep with me is Gabrielle Calicaresi's The Last Time I Saw Amelia Earhart Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the great and I know that I mean I feel like with Gabby, like a lot of people love the subsequent books, like everyone loves, I mean, Apocalyptic Swing and Rocket Fantastic, also good. I'm not knocking those two books, but I feel like that one is the, and I hate to be the like, well, I like the first album best kind of person, but I feel like the last time I saw Mia Earhart is like a real gem. I mean, a brilliant, well-crafted book that um, so gently maneuvers through scene and time and place in multiple voices and does it so generously and so thoughtfully. and so I keep that book on me. And I had Mixology by Adrian uh, Matika mm-hmm. because, you know, um, when I got into poems, I, I got into it in a very unique way where I didn't have, I knew I was going to go back to school. So what I would do was I would ask people in my community, like, well, what, what book should I read? Mm-hmm. And then they would they would give me a book and I would go to the thank yous, the acknowledgements of that book. And I would circle all the names of the poets who were in the, <laughs> and I would go get those books. Mm-hmm. And so Adrian Matika's book, um, Mixology, is one of the ones I got in my first batch. And there's this poem in there called Maggot Brain mm-hmm. um, by Eddie Hazel. And it's the first poem I read that had me like, oh, I think I can write poems. Like if this is what poems are, you know, because I came up with like and I'm not going Shakespeare, but you know, like I came up with the sonnets and I came up with the, and, and that's all. And so seeing maggot brain in a book, I was like, oh, this is like, people write poems like this. I can do that. Like I can, I think I can do that. And so I keep those books with me. I keep a lot of those early books on me. Um, and and so that's kind of the, that's kind of the stack I had with me when I was writing.
0: It's interesting because um, as you're listing some of these influences, and I was thinking back to Springsteen, like the through line for me when I hear you talking about these, um, different artists and poets is that I think narrative, right? Their ability yeah. to really tell that kind of narrative. Like Nebraska was actually a really important album for me to learn how to write a pro like a persona poem. Um, yeah. you know, and and Natasha's work has always been pretty important to me. I mean, I just, uh, I mean, she's she's like a clinical it, it, it's it's hard to do what she does because it's documentary work at the same time, you know, it's very when we think of a lot of documentary poets, the ones that get kind of popular there, you see sort of more fragmented, um, kind of what we consider maybe uglier writing, which is like, you know, let's just look at the language. And Natasha's making this really beautiful art at the same time, right? She's really, you know, messing with that material, but she's doing a high amount of research. And that's a hard, that's a hard line to walk, but that ability to capture really difficult historical information and sort of balance it against each other, is um, is tough to do and people kind of routinely forget that I think in in any poems that are narrative because they're like they're lulled by the story they think oh that's just an easy story that someone is telling in fact um, in order to get across all that information very very quickly and to balance um, historical records so that you read it in a contemporary setting that you read it and understand that that history is alive today that's really that's that's a tough kind of thing to do. Um, and I have to say, like I, I can see that in the essays that you've written, right? Where you you you're writing about a show, but it's clear that we're writing about more than the show. We're writing about a culture that can is is taking in that artist and maybe hearing or not hearing what that artist is saying. So it's a tough line to walk. <laughs> and and I love Gabby's first book too. Yeah, I really do.
1: Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, I definitely like the other two, you know, like I think the thing about her work for me is that I think about Rocket Fantastic and how um you know, like I read it a few times and um, you know, Terence Hayes is someone who's always been in my ear, and someone who's who's just like, um, you know, whether you know they're not been a major mentor for me. And he said this thing about um if you don't like a book of poems, you know, like um Return to it and keep returning to it. And I'm actually on the other side of that. You know, for a long time I was like, oh, I'm not with that, man. You know, what I mean, there's so much shit to read. I'm not gonna keep if I don't, if I'm not rocking with a book. And not to me, like not rocking with a book doesn't mean it's bad. It just means like this one isn't hitting for me. And I'm not. But rocking fantastic. The first couple times I read it, I was like, I don't know. You know, like I don't know if this one's working for me. I don't know. And I was asking people about it. Everyone told me like, oh, keep going back to it because I think you have to keep sitting with it. And honestly, I I don't even know what it was. On the fourth time I read it, it's like. I was seeing it with different eyes. You know what I mean? And I I think Apocalyptic Swing had that same vibe too, where I think there's something about her work, um, there's something about Gabby's work that requires us sitting with it for for a long time. And then what I most love is, and and Gabby's not the only one, I think a lot of poets do this for me, what I love is when the work clicks. Mm -hmm. I would trade that, I I want that feeling all the time, you know, like reading a book and feeling like it's actually doing the thing that that you believed it could do the whole time.
0: Mm. It's funny for me, It was, when I first was starting out, Jory Graham was the poet everyone was talking about and reading, and I remember reading her and not responding to it, and then, but it was because I was reading some of her later work, um, because that's what I came to, Uh, and what happened was I went to Erosion, and when I read that book, I was like, oh, that, that I get, Um, and then from them, Dreaming the Unified Field, which is a good sampling, a really good sampling of, of her early work, and I was like, oh, yeah, now I... I know how to read her. I know, I know how to access that. And one thing I've come to really appreciate about her as a writer, and just as I think about a career, um, you know, a lot of writers, once they get into a mode, they don't change it. They kind of continue to put out the same book. Um, and one thing I could say about writers like her, and, and I think the same is true of Gabby, those books look different right? Yeah. They look different from each other. And that's why sometimes it's hard for people to make the leap into the next one or something like that. Um, so that idea of progress, that's one of the things going back to music. That's one of the reasons that uh, one of my favorite bands when I was younger was Soundgarden. Cause I was like, oh, yeah. you know, you can say a lot about Soundgarden. I, I don't love all their albums equally, but I'm like, they've got a metal band, a metal album. They've got a grunge album. They've got a super synthy pop kind of album. They yeah. think yeah, yeah. something different each time. And so I was like, I was always interested in that. I was like, that's, that's kind of cool to see, right? Whereas like, and you know, like there's other artists where I feel like, oh, that's kind of the same album, you know, and, it, and it's frustrating me. But, yeah,
1: absolutely. So.
0: Well, um, I feel like I've taken up more than enough of your time and I really appreciate all of this, but uh, is there a question that you wish I had asked you <laughs> about writing um, that you would like to talk about? Something about the process of writing this book or nonfiction in general?
1: no i mean i'm sorry that i veered on the poems for so long no uh, okay, apologies all right <laughs> I, um I, I will say that i think um i'm, I'm very proud of they can't kill us until they kill us and i mm-hmm. um my hope is that i never feel i don't know ashamed of any of my books you know like um even the oldest ones um i want to i want to keep feeling feeling good about but um also this is i mean this is not to to, but um, I, I'm such a big fan of your last book, and it was it was one that I took on the on the road with me last year. You know, it seems like a distant past, but I, I spent most of last year on the road, and um, you know, for me that meant, you know, when I'm on the road, I I can almost only read poetry um, mm-hmm. because you know I there's something I don't like flying, and there's something calming about uh, being in a plane and reading poems and so I really appreciated having your book with me um, on the road last year and, and um, like getting to read through it and, and get it to kind of um, like see, I don't know, the, the, the I, don't know, I don't wanna say, growth seems like a bad word, but see the kind of like career of work you're building. Um, but sorry to keep talking about poems. I, I will say that I think, um, you know, the one thing about music criticism that I think is important is that at its core I mostly just want to see people ex- writing about the things they're excited about mm-hmm. you know um like I started this this kind of like pie in the sky music website project and a big part of the reason I started it was kind of just because I was like what would it, what would it do to take people back to this the blog era like I came in writing about music in, the, in a blog era where it was like you could have a blog and just write about whatever you wanted um And now because those spaces are shrinking online at media companies, it's harder for someone to be like, well, I just want to write about this album I love because then the question is like, well, what's it pegged? Is it pegged to a moment? Is it anniversary? Is it speaking to the political whatever? And sometimes I think it just does people good to be like, no, 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 I'm just excited about this thing. And I want to pursue that excitement. And, um, I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where that comes back online. Um, but I, I would love to, to, to encourage folks that, you know, start a blog and, and have a uh, very loose rules to how that blog lives.
0: Well, that is a great last question I was going to ask, which is if students did want to do this besides starting a blog, is there another way that they can also think about starting to write music criticism and getting it out there in the world?
1: Yeah. You know, it's so tough. And I, um, there's a scene in Almost Famous where the Lester Bangs character tells a kid you're coming along at a bad time for rock and roll and I think about that all the time when people are like how can young folks get involved in music criticism because I think those spaces that will pay someone to do music criticism online are just shrinking drastically and continue to I mean you know this stretch the stretch from like January to now has shrunk them even more and so um there just aren't a lot of places and the places that still exist are becoming increasingly selective about the amount of work they can publish and pay people for. Mm -hmm. And so there's that too. Um, But what I always tell people to do is um, to to write regionally and locally because I think there's still a lot of places. um, That's how I began. um, And I think there's still a lot of papers and a lot of places that are excited about young folks younger folks writing just music reviews of shows and i know that um who's to say when a concert will happen again it seems like you know that is uh highly unlikely um but when concerts do happen again in the next who knows when there's there's such a, a hunger for local people to put a local lens on on performance and whatnot um so um I think that's reliable.